It is, um, it is good to be able to sing well, and I look forward to the day that that happens for me. First Timothy chapter 2, we have a lot of work to do this morning. Uh, you say uh, the title is a call to prayer, and you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, Lucas preached on prayer last week. And that's okay, can't preach on that too much, uh, but he uh, set me up for this week very well. And so let me just kind of remind you of where we've been. As we've learned in chapter 1, uh, we spent a few weeks there that sound doctrine is defined as the teachings of the Old Testament, uh, the teachings of Christ and the apostles, uh, which we have contained here in the scriptures. Uh, the overarching theme of sound doctrine that Paul speaks to in chapter 1 is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Right. And then he recites that he is the chief sinner. And Paul calls this um, theological point, uh, this profound statement that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, he calls it a trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance. And then he moves us to the opening lines of chapter 2. So he lays this foundation of what is sound doctrine, and he lays out this idea that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And I told you a couple of weeks ago, that is incredibly good news. Because I am a sinner. That means Jesus came for me. And if there's anything I know about people and what I know about you is that you are also a sinner. And that means Jesus Christ came for me you. That's good news. And after teaching this and speaking this to Timothy in this letter, Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he now is going to give some practical things for Timothy to lay out to his people. And so beginning in chapter two and in the framework of what we've already heard in chapter one, Paul tells this to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there are two particular things about this passage, passage that I want to discuss with you and preach to you and teach you today. One is very difficult. It is difficult to comprehend. It is difficult to understand. And it is incredibly difficult to teach in about 25 to 30 minutes. And if you've been in this church for very long, you're saying 25 or 30 minutes. That is a joke. You have never done anything in 25 or 30 <laughs> minutes. But I'm going to try to today. But one is difficult and hard to understand. You can kind of think about the Trinity. We know the Trinity is a clear teaching in the Bible, and yet it is difficult to wrap our minds around that. And this will be equally as difficult. The second is easy to explain but incredibly hard to do so we're going to try to walk through these to 
today. I find, for me personally, that the majority of the Bible's teachings for Christians to follow is clear and easy to explain. It is. And although I love to discuss theology and the mysteries of God's word, still profound to me is the simplicity of the gospel and the clear commands for believers to follow. And we tend to cloud the clear commands of God with debates between theological camps, and there's not anything wrong with those debates as long as they don't turn sinful, and oftentimes they do. But we tend to cloud the clear stuff by trying to argue about some things that are somewhat mysterious. Now, we all belong to theological camps. Even if you don't know which one's yours is, you belong to one. And all I have to do is teach something about the Bible, and you can say something like, well, I don't think God does that. That means you have a camp, <laughs> and it may not be the one I'm in. So we all have our camps, and yet the call to holy living for believers is clear. And the commands of God are clear, but yet they are extremely difficult to walk out because of our old natures that want to do nothing but resist the holy lives that Christ has called those of us who have been redeemed to live out. And this can be seen in these four verses, these two ideas of the mystery of God and a clear command. So let's tackle the mysterious part of this opening passage first. That's found in verse 4, where it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You may be saying, well, that's not difficult. But it is difficult. Because there is a desire of God, and then there is the will of God. <coughs> so let's ponder this for a moment. If God desires all to be saved, but not all are saved, then his desire must be different than his will. Put your floaties on. <laughs> Are you ready? Get going into the deeper end here. If God desires all to be saved, and he clearly does because it just said that in the Bible, and not all are saved then his desire for all people to be saved must be different than his will. If you say, well, Jason, that can't be right, then you are putting yourself in a very difficult spot because now you're saying that God wills to do something that he is unable to do. And that's a problem. When I was a police officer... If I said you were going to jail, you were going to jail. You could bring your friends. I would bring mine. And at some point, you would lose. After I had been in enough fights, I started off all conversations with big guys like that. I said, listen, i got to take you to jail. And you can fight me, and you will whip me badly. But there's more coming, brother. And so let's just 
and it almost all the time works. Listen, if God wills to do something, nobody can stop God from doing it. And so his desire must be different than his will. Because if you think that's not true, then God is no longer all-powerful. And a God who is not all-powerful, let's just be honest, I'm not interested in serving that God. If God says, I want to do something, I will to do something, this is my will, I just haven't been able to carry it out, I'm just not strong enough, that is a particular problem for us. In Isaiah chapter 46, 9 through 10, it says this, For I am God, and there is no other. That's why we just sang that. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man. But listen, believer, it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, this is where it gets difficult. And whether we like it or not, mystery comes in. How does God accomplish these things then? Well, I don't fully know. I don't fully understand. And neither does anybody else. Despite what they may say, there is still mystery here. The theological study of salvation is called soteriology. And that study produces several doctrinal camps on how God accomplishes the redemption of his people. And it is important to debate that, to study that, and to ponder that so that the church does not find itself in a heretical position. And we have covered this extensively in our pulpit before, in our focus class, and even recently in our men's ministry, and we'll be again discussing this in the future in our life groups. So I'm not shying away from the camp I'm in, but there are great God-honoring scholars and pastors who have landed in different camps regarding how God redeems his people and how he operates. But let me be very clear. No respectable position holds that all people actually come to saving faith. That is called universalism, and that is a false doctrine from hell. The Bible clearly does not teach, and that doctrine has been consistently refuted by the church throughout history. So God desires all people to be saved. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so, right there. And yet we know he wills those who will be saved, and only those he draws can be saved. And yet scripture teaches us that we also have our own will to decide. And yet we are called in this passage to pray for the lost, to come to Christ, which denotes clearly that salvation is the work of the Lord, which we know it is. And yet... Jesus even speaks of man's will. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets 
and stones those who sent to it? How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gather her brood under her wings? And yet you were not willing. But God is the one who calls and God is the one who saves because he is sovereign in the work of salvation. Salvation is the work of God alone. And I am also saying that we have a will to choose Christ. But those who don't want to be saved choose to reject Christ. Yes, and yet God is in charge of all of it. And you're saying, well, Jason, that's a bit confusing. Well, welcome to the mystery of God in soteriology. I'm always available for Starbucks, Mexican food, you pay. <laughs> and we can camp on this. And I can give you a better understanding of where I come from. But whether we want to admit it or not, there is some mystery on how God does it. And I believe that once we, the redeemed, get to heaven, we're going to get it. We're going to get it. And I think some people will be wrong. <laughs> but I leave out the option that it might be me. <laughs> but I don't think so. But nevertheless, it's mysterious. Oh, I got through that part of it. <laughs> Here's the point of chapter 2, though. I don't think it has anything to do with the debate over soteriology. No matter how many in both camps and or multiple camps try to latch onto this passage as their proving ground. I don't think that's the point of what Paul is trying to speak to Timothy for Timothy to speak to his people in Ephesus. I don't want you to miss out on the main point of what the scriptures are teaching us, and that is involving prayer and the implications of the believer's prayers for the gospel. Let's look at the second part of this passage, the one that is easy and clear and yet very difficult to do. So Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls the believers in Ephesus, in Timothy's church, to pray. After all of that discussion in 1 Timothy chapter 1, over sound doctrine and, and in the framework and in the background of Jesus came to save sinners, that's who he came for. Here's the first thing I want you to do, Timothy. After all I just taught you about sound doctrine, Here's the first thing I want you to instruct your people to do. And we're like, oh, here comes deep, deep stuff. Deep, theologically rich stuff. Pray. What? <laughs> Pray. I want you to have supplication, which is asking God for something generally for ourselves, such as wisdom, general prayer that covers various things, intercessions, means praying on behalf of someone else and thanksgiving, thanking God for something particular. So in this huge theological framework of chapter 1, the first way we walk out that theological framework of which the overarching point of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that Jesus came to save sinners, he calls the people to prayer. Who do we pray for? You pray for all people. Well, Paul, could you be a little bit more specific? And he says, yes, I will. For kings and all who are in high positions. 
substitute president. Let's just get this out and open. Are y'all ready? This is so much fun and so scary. Are you ready? There are some of you in here who think that the R in Republican stands for righteous and the D stands for demons. There are others in here who may think the D stands for divine and the R stands for rude. Let me help you out with something. Take this to the bank. You will find very few people who love politics more than me or who loves American history more than me or who loves to study presidential history more than I. I love it. I have a passion for it. If it's a political drama, I have seen it and probably watched it again. Let me help you out with something. If you think that the way to rescue our country is with Republicans or Democrats, you know nothing about the history of politics in the world, much less America. Our hope is not in who gets elected. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And the greatest thing our country needs is not your political party to get into power. It is that people would understand that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and they are sinners just like we are. The gospel and the gospel alone transforms people's lives. Here's a shock for you. I know. Are you ready? Politicians will say things that they believe to get elected, <laughs> not because they actually believe it. On both sides of the aisle. Ten years ago, I was more passionate about politics than I am today. Because I have learned the term of disappointment by everybody who ever gets elected. So Paul calls the people to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And despite what many of us may have been taught, the ultimate purpose of prayer here is not that they would have wisdom or that they would be removed from office or that they would lose re-election. That's not the framework of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Remember, this is a letter, and so the actual letter, there are no chapter numbers, there are no verse numbers. It's a letter, and in the theme of Jesus Christ came to save sinners, he calls the people to pray for all people and for kings and for those in high positions. And then he says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge That's the purpose of the prayer. People would come to know Christ. And what is the result of this prayer for the believers? It says it. That we may lead. Pray, people. Pray for all people. Pray for the leaders in high positions. Pray for the kings. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Scripture here in Philippians chapter 4 which you heard in our elder prayer among other places draws a direct connection between our prayer lives and peace. Let me say that again. Scripture draws a direct correlation between our prayer lives and peace between our prayer lives and godliness, between our prayer lives and the evangelism of the lost, between our prayer lives and living a life that is good and pleasing 
to the Father. So we can debate all day long the mystery of God and soteriology. We can do it. We can debate it. We can talk about it. There's nothing wrong with talking about it. Otherwise, if you don't talk about it, if you don't draw where you stand on certain points of that, you can find yourself in heresy such as universalism. I get that. But you want to put some rubber to the road? You want to get some traction in your Christian life? Recognize this, that your time in prayer affects how much peace you have and how godly you can be in life and how evangelism works in the world. And that directly affects your life being lived in a good and pleasing way to the Father. Two amens. Looking for more. <laughs> this is a clear command. There's no debating. There's no one that can say, well, does he really mean pray for kings? I mean, that's not what he really meant. Or, you know, we don't have a king, Jason. Well, he covers that by saying people in high positions. This is clear. It's a clear command. It's undeniable. And it's easier to argue about what camps we belong into than it is for us to pray for all people, especially for those in high positions who are persecuting you. See, we forget the context of the letter. When the Ephesians were told by Timothy, okay, here's what, here's what we should do as godly people. We should pray for all people, especially for Nero. If you got history, Nero was not a friend of Christians. Actively persecuting the church. That's what the Ephesians just heard. Pray for the kings and all the people in high positions who were not believers. Pray for them. Give thanks for them. Supplications for them. Done got quiet in here. The ability to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified, lies in our commitment to pray for all people. Because if we won't pray for them, we will not minister to If we will not pray for them, we will not minister to them. Now, when Obama was in office, <laughs> no one was keen on praying for the president that I was around. Now that Trump's in the office, we should pray for the president. Uh, really? <laughs> Have we lost the command of God? Are you really going to follow God's commands based on what letter is beside their name and the office they hold? I mean, Really? Is that where we are as Christians? No wonder the church is powerless. We're no different. We stick our fingers in our mouths and we look for the wind. Which direction are we blowing politically? Now I'll pray. They were praying for Nero. When was the last time someone in your family was executed for their faith by the government? Didn't think so. See how this would have been difficult for the Ephesians? Very unlikely that any of the people serving in any position of government in the area of Ephesus would have been pro-Christian. 
So this command by Timothy is centered upon this idea that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he can save Nero. When was the last time you prayed for an Islamic terrorist to be rescued by the gospel? We celebrate their destruction from a bomb. We care nothing about their souls. Were you less wretched in your sin? These believers in Ephesus would have been a small group. And a call to prayer for salvation of those in high positions. And them doing that would have had subsequent lifestyle changes that would have a real impact on their heart for evangelism. Listen, we complain regularly Especially in East Texas, I see patients for a living. Most of them tend to be senior adults. I like senior adults. Amen. <laughs> I remember when I was in student ministry, they said, you should work with senior adults. I actually was in charge of driving the bus for the senior adults when I was like 29 years old. I thought it was an assignment from Satan. <laughs> I just wanted to be around students. Some of y'all are like, I can't believe you just said that. Is it wrong to be honest? <laughs> they have grown on me. Their commitment to the Lord, their heart for the church, their loyalty. But make no doubt, children have not learned how to use a filter. Senior adults have learned they choose not to. <laughs> Amen? They will usually preface it by this. I know I shouldn't say this. <laughs> but. And so the topic of conversation every year when I see patients during an election year tends to be focused on the politics. And so we complain a lot about leaders. And we generally only complain about those we are opposed to. But we rarely pray for them. We rarely pray for them. And the salvation of those we disagree with is rarely our concern. And that is an indictment of us as believers. That we care more about a political agenda than we do about the souls. How often do you post negative things about politicians on social media? How often have you complained about something political in the presence of other believers or even in the, pres pre in the presence of those who are unbelievers? And when we do pray for them, do we not normally pray that they be removed or to lose an election or to be indicted or to be taken out of office. But when was the last time you prayed that they would come to the knowledge of the truth of Christ and be rescued? 
It's the same for me. It's an indication of how much our old nature has taken control of those of us who are redeemed. We do the very thing Jesus said not to do. We spew hatred and refuse to pray for those who need Jesus. And that's either because we don't believe in an eternity in hell or we don't care that certain people will go there. And then we wonder why our lives are not peaceful and why we don't have an impact in evangelism and why the church doesn't grow. I mean, if our lives are replicated by younger believers, would the, be church, would the church be known as a praying church or would it be known for our hateful Facebook posts? If they would pray for Nero, can you not pray for those who are in different parties? <coughs> that mystery of God was fun. Let's go back to that. <laughs> the clear command of Scripture. Hard to do. What we talk about and how we talk about politics and religion, the two things you're never supposed to talk about, right? But yet we all talk, talk about. <laughs> Should be salted by our love for the gospel. And our heart that people would come to know Jesus. That's to change our country needs. Not a change of political power. Let me just have if all, if every office in the country was held by Republicans, it would still be a mess. <laughs> there would still be controversies. There would still be scandals. And I can assure you the same for the Democrats or the Independents or Libertarians, although they will never get elected. <laughs> See, my political thing just came out there. It's probably true, though. It's hard. You've got a two-party system. And if your party wins everything, we suddenly think that the country would be made right. You are fooling yourself. Our country needs Jesus. So the next time you get ready to post something hateful or post something of a strong opinion, I would ask you to be reminded by the Holy Spirit to stop and pray first. That God would let them see the truth. That they would come to know Christ. That their lives would have a passion for the things of the Lord. And then when you get finished laying before the creator and sovereign king of the universe, who, though you were a wretched sinner, dead in your sins, on your way to hell, God rescued... Maybe you would come back from that prayer and log off of the computer. Wouldn't it be nice if a church was known for their passion for the things of the Lord and not their passion for certain things politically? That would be nice. I've read this quote before. We've used it in our men's ministry as well, but it's a quote from John Piper. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That's an indictment. 
believers, listen to the word of God. Heed the command of the sovereign king of the universe. Hear the voice of your heavenly father who loves you and rescued you from hell and gave you life. Here is what he says. Here is what he is saying to us today. Here is what he said to the Ephesians. I urge you, I exhort you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This, this is good. And this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, even Nero, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That should be our passion. That people would come to the knowledge of truth, not to our political. May Sovereign Life Fellowship be different. Especially in the realm of politics. That though we may choose and vote, and there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong with saying that stand here, but that it is a distant second to that they would come to know the truth about Jesus and they would be rescued. And here is the gospel. That we were born into sin. No one had to teach us how to sin. And that even while we were sinning against that sovereign creator universe, even while we were enemies of the cross, God, because of his rich love and mercy, sent Jesus to pay your penalty of sin so that you could skip the punishment you richly deserved and you could be adopted into the family of God, that you would come to the knowledge of truth and that you would give Christ your sin and he would give you his righteousness. That's the gospel. And that's why it's called good news. I said, well, how do I do that? How do, I, do I need to take your hand? Do I need to repeat a prayer? I'm going to tell you what they've said all the way through the Bible. Repent and believe. And if that is true for you, if you have repented and you have believed, then your life will never be the same again. Will you fail? Yes. Will you struggle in sinful areas from time to time? Yes but you will have a new passion and a new master and that will be Jesus. As Keith comes to lead us in worship, I'm always available to talk as are the other elders. I pray that you would meditate on what has been preached this morning and what the word of God has called us to do and to be. And if you need a time of confession, you confess that sin before the Lord. You ask God to give you the strength and the power to overcome your sinful flesh in this area that we have talked about today. 
that you would mark your life with a passion that the gospel would be proclaimed to all people and they would be and they would come to the knowledge of truth and be rescued just as you have been. Let's pray. Lord God, how easily our passions are swayed into things that do not matter. I fear, Lord, that for myself, and I have no doubt for others in this room, that I have been known for opinions and passions that had very little to do with the gospel. And I pray, God, that for me, I would be different because of Christ. And I pray for this church, that our church would be known for our passion for you and our passion that people, all people, in all areas and in all high positions would find the truth of Christ. May that be what we are known for. I pray your Holy Spirit would stop our fingers from typing. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit for those of us who believe would prick our hearts when we begin to talk by a water cooler or at work about things that we can be passionate about that, Lord, we know have no eternal value. I pray, God, you would, as the psalmist said, you would put a guard over our mouths. That the words and the meditations of our hearts would truly be pleasing to you. We need help here, God. We need help here. Please come and help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to respond in holiness, Lord. It's your name we pray.